Uh, as David mentioned, I'm a member of your provisional session, and uh, it has also been a privilege for me to serve alongside those men. I'm not around as often as I would like to be, uh, because as he also mentioned, I'm planting a church, which is a very busy lifestyle. I would ask for your prayers uh, for the church plant, but especially for my family. Uh, church planting, as I'm discovering, is a, um, a place of a lot of spiritual warfare, a lot of attacks. So please keep us in mind as you pray for area churches and, and works that you're supporting, which we are now one of them. As he also mentioned, you guys are now part of something called the Mid-South Church Planting Network, which is a brand new thing. And uh, I'm very excited as a church planter to be a part of it, uh, along with two other guys that are also planting churches there in Arkansas and in North Mississippi. Uh, but this new network is going to allow us to plant more churches more quickly. And that's a good thing uh, for a lot of reasons. But I'll give you a couple just to kind of whet your appetite and, and get you to investigate more about what you're now a part of. Uh, church planting is important because especially in our denomination, PCA, and it's true really of all evangelicals, most churches don't grow beyond 200 members. In fact, over 80% of PCA churches will never grow beyond 200 members. That's almost always true. Uh, very few churches grow beyond that, and they expend a lot of energy and a lot of money to get there. That's not to say that big churches are bad. Good churches are better, or small churches are better, or anything like that. It's just to say that's a reality. That's what we deal with. And so, um, because churches only get to be so big typically, the only way we're going to grow is by planting more of them, right? Because as we've seen uh, in most of our churches that have been around for 20 or 30 years, people will come and people will go, right? They're, they're coming and they're going somewhere, but especially for the people who are not in church, the people who have no interest in coming to church. Those are the people we're trying, we're all trying to reach, right? And the reality is, uh, for whatever reason, those people are more likely to attend a new church than an established church. And that has historically been the case. And so that's one good reason to plant churches. Another reason is there are a lot of places where uh, there are not many churches, even though we think of ourselves in the southeast as being really saturated with church. Uh, and there are a lot of churches in Minnesota County, but most people don't realize that, especially in the area that I'm planting, about 17% of the people are active evangelicals. And that's it. And in the state of Mississippi, which is considered a very religious state, did you know that only 35% of the people are now active church participants? So uh, there's a need for church planting, and I'm happy to be a part of it. Uh, I'm specifically happy about the, the work that I believe that God's called my family to. Christ Fellowship is the name of the church. And uh, we are seeking to be, our vision is to be an intentionally diverse church, an intentionally multi-ethnic and multi-class church, because Horn Lake is a very diverse place. And uh, I'm excited about that for a number of reasons. Part of it's because of my background. I was raised in a predominantly African-American congregation of Jehovah's Witnesses in uh, North Mississippi. And so uh, after I was converted in college through RUF and became part of a church uh, in, in Olive Branch that's uh, very majority white, um, that, that's been the last 15 years of my life. But there's part of me that's itched for um, some barriers being crossed. 
And and part of me has had to kind of grow to understand why are things the way they are now. And so in in feeling called to plant this church, um, it comes for me from the gospel. I believe the good news about Jesus Christ to be a very unifying message. Um, and I would take you specifically to John 17 when Jesus prays for his future church. He prays for our unity. And of course, there's an invisible reality underneath that, right? It's the Holy Spirit rocks. But there's also a visible reality that comes from that. Because in Acts chapter 2, when the Apostle Peter stands up to preach with the other apostles, and it says that there are 3,000 people converted that day, those people were people from all over the known world. There were uh, multiple backgrounds and regions represented and multiple classes represented. And so the radical, visible thing that the Holy Spirit was doing in applying the gospel to people's lives and hearts was creating this, this new body of people where barriers were being broken down in terms of race and class and everything else. And it was beautiful and it was attractive because people were like, shocked by it. Why are these people worshiping together who used to hate each other? And I believe that in the Mid-South, um, that is a very appropriate application of the gospel. And it's something that we hope to, uh, to realize and, and to live out. Certainly God is going to have to do that. I'm no expert. I don't think anybody is, to be honest. Um, so we're trusting the Holy Spirit, and I'm asking for your prayers. Um, so far, the group that God has, has brought together is very diverse in, in a lot of ways. And we're very thankful for it, but it's also very fragile and very young. So pray for our young church. Pray that we would unify, not just for the sake of an outward appearance, but that we would actually build relationships with one another. And right now, that's what we're doing. We spend on sunny evenings. We have a potluck. We eat. It's, it's loud. It's crazy. We play some games. We're trying to get to know one another uh, and trying to learn about each other's lives and what God has been doing. And, and the reality is, in many of the people that are coming lives, God is, is sort of a distant reality to them right now. They're, they're very young to church and new to the idea of being a part of the church and new to Jesus. And so pray for those people especially that they would come to know uh, our Lord and Savior and that there would be uh, real unity that would come from that. So uh, a lot to think about and pray for in our church plant. I would encourage you to go to the website or come see me after the service and I'll tell you how to sign up for our prayer newsletter or I will take your email and sign you up for you. Uh, and that way I know you're getting them. Um, the other thing is financial support. We're right now very encouraged to be about 72% funded, which is, which is great. Um, and a lot of churches and networks are supporting us as individuals as well. And your church is already supporting you via the network. Thank you for that. But if you're an individual that would be interested in talking to me about support, I'd love to talk to you about that as well. Um, our text this morning is Matthew chapter 1. And uh, it is a text that probably somebody, maybe Nathan, preached from a couple of months ago, back in, in the Advent season, or, or you at least be familiar with it. Uh, but that's where we're going to be this morning. My wife and I, um, we often, uh, and we enjoy these things, we often have debates with other family members, and maybe you've had one of these debates. It's about a TV show. So there's a television show that we all like and we're familiar with the characters. And so we will pick one of our favorite shows and as a family we will argue about which character we would be if we were on the show. You ever done this? 
And the character that I would pick for myself is almost never the one that everybody else would pick for me, right? I'm always the cool person on the show. I'm definitely this guy, right? And everybody's like, no. No, you're not. You're this guy, right? No. Why is that? Why do we, why do we always pick the better characters for ourselves and leave the other ones to somebody else? We're going to look at the life this morning of Joseph. And that may seem strange. And if you've ever heard a sermon from this passage, chances are very little time was spent on Joseph, right? And he's really not the main point of the text. But we're going to draw in some other information about Joseph and his life because I think he is an important person. And the reality is, is if you had to pick a character from the Bible or even from the nativity scene, you probably wouldn't pick Joseph, right? He has no speaking parts. <laughs> he just kind of stands there. If you thought about it, I and mean, if you ever read through the Bible, Joseph never says anything. He considers things, he does things, but he never says anything. But as I started to dig, it became clear to me that we need to pay more attention to people like Joseph in the Bible. He may not be the character that I would pick, but he is the earthly father of Jesus so that's the, the point this morning for us to consider is why Joseph? Let me pray before we dive in. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, your word is full of stories. And they are, in many ways, magnificent, very well-written stories. And sometimes we identify with the characters and we find ourselves um, in the lives that they lived out. But most important as we come to your word, as we do each week, is that we find your story, that we hear your story, the story of Jesus Christ, and who you're about and what you've done. And I pray that this morning, even as we consider some things about Joseph, that we would see ourselves, that most of all we would see you, pray your spirit, enter in and speak to us as we seek to listen in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's what we know about Joseph, and it's not much, admittedly, but we know this. We know Joseph was poor. When his family visited the temple, Joseph was only able to afford a pair of pigeons as an offering, which is one of the smallest things that he could offer. By trade, the Bible says that he was a tecton, which is a very general term. It refers to somebody who labors with his hands, probably with wood or stone, church tradition, labels him a carpenter, and there's some early evidence that perhaps he was a maker of yokes and plows. Uh, he was close to agriculture, and some of that makes sense, and so maybe that's you know, why Jesus is doing some of those illustrations that he does. But we know that he lived and worked in a small rural town called Nazareth, a town that had a very poor reputation among the people of Israel. Joseph was a man of few words, and as I said a minute ago, he really has no speaking parts in the Bible. And um, we also know that because when he goes to the temple with his family, Mary speaks on his behalf, which is a little strange in that culture. Uh, so Joseph doesn't say much. He's kind of a quiet, poor laborer. That's at least how the Bible depicts him. That's what we're supposed to know about Joseph. And I try to think of somebody in my life that fits that description because I'm not quiet, um, and so it's not me. Uh, but uh, I thought of my great-grandfather. And uh, my great-grandfather um, 
passed away 20 years ago. Uh, he was in his 90s, so he lived a long life. But most of his life, he was a tractor mechanic, and he had a, a shop um, out in the country, and people would bring tractors to him, and he would repair them, and he had some, some cows and some other stuff, too. He farmed a little bit. Uh, but a few years ago at Thanksgiving, my dad and I went up to this tractor shed, and we were rummaging through some of his toolboxes and looking at things, and there were tools that I've never seen before, don't know what they are, um, not even sure some of them still exist, but I started to remember my great-grandfather, and I remembered him as being uh, a quiet man. He didn't say much, but he laughed a lot, he smiled a lot, and he just loved to watch us play and, and watch things happen. He would sit on the porch and just watch cars pass by. A uh, very quiet man, a uh, joyful man, a laborer, and, uh, and relatively poor. And I think that's the type of man that God chose to be the legal guardian of his only son. Not a priest, not a scribe, not a wealthy man, not a powerful man. God picked, essentially, a working class guardian for Jesus Christ. But, of course, that's not the whole picture of Joseph's identity, is it? Because the angel comes to him and addresses him as son of David. So there's another story here. Matthew actually lists an extensive genealogy right before our passage in order to prove that Joseph was actually the legal heir to the throne, not Herod. And so this quiet worker was also the rightful heir to the throne of David. So there are two parts to his identity. They're both important. What about his character? Which is also important. Notice that Joseph is first called a just man. We don't know how Joseph heard that Mary was pregnant. She may have sent word to him. uh, Or it's entirely possible, as some commentators say, that town gossip reached him because they were not yet living together. Um... And we know that Nazareth, being a small town of probably about 500 people or less at that time, that everybody knows everybody in a town that size. And so, it's possible that he heard through word of mouth, Mary's pregnant. Can you imagine the inner struggle? No matter how he receives that news, the inner struggle that had to be going on for him. In that day, he had two lawful options. He could out her publicly which would mean subjecting her to public shame and the punishment of an adulteress, which could mean death, that option would have most protected his own reputation. Okay. Second option, he could choose to divorce her quietly, and that would mostly protect her reputation. The Scripture calls him just specifically because he chose the second option. Isn't that interesting? Now think about Jesus. Think about Jesus' ministry and how often he would have he would have disputes with the Pharisees about strict observance of the law. They would come to him and they would be nitpicking about something that he was doing and saying, You're not following the law and, and he would debate this with them. But Jesus always interpreted the law with love as the background, right? He he kept it. He never broke it. 
but he would always interpret it for them to show them that love is meant to be the background. And Jesus would very often let his own reputation go in order to associate with the outcast of society. Knowingly, he would do this. And that's essentially what Joseph is doing here because he doesn't yet understand how Mary became pregnant. He was a just man. He sought to protect Mary, when he could have rightfully judged her, he was being self-forgetful. Okay? Second, Joseph was a faithful man. It's no coincidence that how much of Joseph's story lines up with the Old Testament Joseph, which was his namesake. The Old Testament Joseph had also a father named Jacob, which was Joseph, New Testament's father's name. The Old Testament Joseph was used by God to nurture his family in a famine but was also led through some difficult times in order to get there. The New Testament Joseph was also used by God to nurture the Son of God and went through some difficult times in the process. The Old Testament Joseph had how many dreams? Four. The New Testament Joseph also has four dreams that shape his life. And so Matthew is saying to us that Joseph is clearly being used by God. In the Old Testament, it was not always clear that Joseph was going to be faithful, was it? There are times where that's not clear. He brags on himself early, right? He's kind of a a little bit arrogant about some of the gifts that God gave him. He lorded his position over his brothers at times. Um, You see him trying to leverage God's gift in his life for his own purposes at times. He faced some temptation. He spent some time in prison. But in the end... Joseph did prove to be, ultimately, a faithful man. He saw God use his life for a greater purpose in the midst of those difficult things. In the New Testament, it's not immediately clear that Joseph is going to be faithful either. In verse 20, it says that he, after he had considered, or as he considered these things, that word considered is important because it reminds us that Joseph is human. The only time that word is used in the rest of the Bible is uh, in later in Matthew. Jesus uses it as he is reading the thoughts of the teachers of the law. And he asks them this question, why do you think evil in your hearts? So considered by itself is a little bit weak. Uh, one commentator said that it, it may be fuming is a better word. And several have said that he's obviously dealing with some frustration, some anger here as he is considering this. And and we would too, right? If you think about put yourself in his shoes, this is a difficult decision. Life is a little unhinged right now. So if you're this, you know, quiet man raised in a humble setting where you're just supposed to get married and have kids and have a home and be, you know, earn your living, and all of a sudden you receive this news your dreams of a family with Mary and a house of your own and children of your own, they're starting to fade, right? So you can imagine this is a difficult situation to be in. But then God comes in, breaks into the story, and he gives Joseph a different dream. So Joseph's on one path, and there's a, there's a roadblock. And it's at that moment that God comes in and he gives Joseph 
four dreams, actually. And, and Joseph obeys every word that he has spoken to in a dream. And in a period of a few years, by God's command, he takes this little family from Nazareth to Bethlehem to Egypt and back. All at the uh, command of God through dreams. And that's basically what it means to be faithful. It means obeying God's will for us, even when our hearts are telling us that something else would be better. Because from an earthly perspective, Joseph had a lot of good reasons to walk away from this circus, right? Only knowing what he knew going into it. This is crazy. But he was a just man, and he was a faithful man, and he stays, and he obeys. But the last point I want to make about Joseph is this. Joseph was a just man, and he was a faithful man, but he was just a faithful man. Joseph was just a faithful man. Joseph is not the star of the show. And he didn't need to be, right? Jesus was and is the star of this story and the whole Bible. And so I would be remiss if I told you about how good a man Joseph was and didn't get here, and I'm here now. Jesus is not a part of Joseph's story. Joseph is a part of God's story. And this is so crucial for us, especially in our day and age. It is tempting for us to look at the life of Joseph and honor his grace and his faithfulness, and we should, but we can't stop there. We have to ask the question, why is he so engaged? Why is Joseph so faithful? It's because he believed the promises of God. He looked beyond his earthly identity, both his reasons for pride and humility. He looks beyond that and he trusts in a bigger story that God had planned for him, that he was calling him to be a part of. Jesus is the star because Jesus is perfectly just and faithful. Jesus doesn't have to consider these things. He's not hesitating. He invites us into His family through a perfect act of grace. But, we become part of His story. He does not become part of ours. And our part in that is that we learn to be like our Savior. We learn to be just and faithful, showing people grace like He has shown us. And that is enough. Just be faithful with what He's given you. Just do what He says. We don't need a bigger story than that. You and I, no matter where you are right now, you are already a part of the biggest story in the universe. Right where God has you today. Uh, let me illustrate it with this. There's a, a guy named Bill Clem. And he's written a book called Disciple. And he gives two scenarios. In the first scenario, he says there are three drama students. And they have one year left to complete their degrees at a private college. And so they get together and they figure out how much money that last year would cost them. And instead of finishing school, they drop out. And they decide they're going to come up with their own play. And so they begin to write and direct and star in their own three-man play in one of them's garages. And everybody they talk to is skeptical. Right? Parents, friends, professors, everybody says, please don't do this. It's way too risky. 
you're not going to find what you're looking for doing this, right? Finish school and then see what's next. But they don't listen. That's the first scenario. Here's the second. There's another drama student, and she has a year left also before she finishes her degree. And during the summer, she auditions for a small part in a Broadway play. And she gets a call back. And she goes and, and interviews, and eventually she gets offered the part. Now, it's not a lead role. It's a relatively small part. But she has the opportunity now to work with some of the best in the field. And she comes home, and she tells everybody, and everybody says, do it, right? Go. Friends, family, professors, they're all telling her, this is your opportunity, take it. What's the difference? The difference is, a small role in something huge is usually much better than a large role in something that you came up with, right? Unless you're like Steve Jobs. Maybe every now and then, right? Um, as Pink Floyd says, do you want to walk on part in a war or a lead role in a cage? And that really is the question that we have to wrestle with every day. Is the story God has written for us enough? Will I be faithful? Or will I try to maneuver and position myself into something better? Joseph had that choice. He could have walked away and started fresh with his own plans, but he chose to take the small part in God's epic drama. We are tempted to think that we can simply invite God into our little story and give Him a walk-on part in the story of me, which usually looks like an hour and a half on Sunday and sometimes every other Sunday, right? And so we kind of relegate Him to the part that fits. But that's not how it works. The story that we would write for ourselves is a distortion of reality. God's story is reality. He gives out the parts. But will we be content? Jesus gives this story meaning. He's the only one that can ever give any story meaning. In other words, we don't need a bigger identity than the one that we already have available in Jesus Christ. So we need to learn to live in the identity that He bestows on us. Jesus has to be no. Listen, I want to confess to you. I have been guilty of wanting more than what God has given me so many times. Myself and many of you, we are products of a culture that is extremely self-focused. We think that average is not enough. I live a lot of days with this sense of clandestiny that, you know, that my life is meant to be. It's supposed to be better than whatever average is. And we, we're taught to believe that we can and, and, and will achieve anything that we put our minds to, right? Whatever the dream is, go for it and you'll succeed. And what I see is I see many of my peers who will not settle down and take a normal job because they are holding out for something better. And even when they find what they think is their dream job, they quickly grow dissatisfied with it because it's not what they thought it was going to be. And I'm afraid that we've made average out to be a bad thing. 
And very often I find myself obsessed with what my future holds and I forget what God has called me to do right now. And why would God give me a bigger garden to cultivate if I'm not doing anything with the one I've got? I would confess to you as a preacher that there have been times when I have probably taught and preached in such a way that my application sounded like, you need to go do great things for Jesus. We preachers do that sometimes, right? Because we're always thinking about spiritual stuff and thinking about what good Christians ought to be doing. Sometimes we give this application that, you know, you're only a good Christian if you go do, you go move to India, right? Or you, and, and we need people to do those things. But, what if that's not the story God has for you? Uh, I read an article this past week by a guy named Jared Wilson, and it, it sort of got my ego. He said this, he said, you know, it's possible that God's plan for us is littleness. His plan for us may be personal failure. It's possible that when another door closes, it's not because he plans to open a window, but because he plans to have the building fall down on you. The question we must ask ourselves is this, will Jesus be enough? Is the God of the working class enough for us? Do we trust Him with the story He's writing? I don't usually read long sections of a book in a sermon. Uh, This is not too long, but it makes the point much better than I could. Um, It's from a book called God of the Mundane. Uh, written by an acquaintance of mine named Matt Lindman. Not the famous Christian singer Matt Lindman. Um, but he says this. He says, There is a God for those who are not changing anything but diapers. There is a God for those who simply love their spouse and pour out unappreciated affection on their children day after day. There is a God for the mom who spends her days scraping the trampled mac and cheese off the kitchen floor. There is a God for the man who hammers out a day's work in obscurity for his wife and kids. There is a God for the just and kind employers. There is a God for generous homemakers, generous with prayers and dollars and time. There is a God for the middle class people staving off cancer, struggling to raise teenagers, and simply hoping against hope they keep their jobs. There is a God for the broken home with a full bank account but an empty bed. There is a God for those children tending to the health of their aged parents. There is a God for the mean times and the culture drunk on the weekend's promises. We may flirt with greatness, but the fact is, for the Christian and non-Christian, ordinary is the divine order of the day for the vast majority of us. Kids, bills, coupons, cable, home repair, gas in the tank, church attendance, inexpensive pleasures, discount shopping, and family reunions are what we are made of. There is a God delighting in the ordinary existence of the unknown faithful doing unknown work. There is a God of grace for those who live out their faith everywhere but do not want to move anywhere. Take a deep breath. That's a refreshing message, isn't it? Paul, the apostle, urges the Thessalonians to live a quiet life and work with their hands. He tells Timothy to give similar instructions to his church. 
we may not see what God plans to do with our lives. In reality, as Joseph did, at least we don't think he did. Joseph followed the instructions he provided for his family. You know, Joseph kind of disappears from the Bible sometime before Jesus' ministry starts. We don't know why. We assume it died. Mary got to see the end result. Joseph didn't, at least not from earth. And we may not get to see what God intends to do with our ordinary lives. The other thing I would say is this is an encouragement, too, that we not judge other people's stories. The world puts a lot of emphasis on success in class. And it is an emphasis that you don't see in the kingdom of God. God loves the working class. He loves the poor. It's true. He also loves a lot of rich people and middle class people. But maybe part of the reason that so many people refuse to take average or low-wage jobs is because we've created a culture of shame and performance that we speak to by our words and our actions. And you know, the Gospel levels that playing field. It promotes our ability to focus on the story of somebody else, not to judge them, to love them. And the most important story that God would have us focus on in order to get there is the story of Jesus. The angel instructed Joseph to call the baby Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. You know, when we have kids, our focus shifts a lot, right? From our own needs to theirs. And you you can't get around it. You try. I I tried as a parent. And you fight for your own needs, but you just don't have any time or energy left, right? How much more for Joseph to know that he had to provide for a baby that was to be the hope of the world? His whole life had to be reoriented around that fact, right? And yet Joseph, who could only offer two pigeons as an offering for sin at the temple, had a hand bestowed by God in raising the once and for all sacrifice for sin. God's only Son. That is, to me, one of the most beautiful pictures of the Gospel in all of Scripture. Think about it for a minute. Joseph was really not up to the task of receiving baby Jesus, was he? Would any of us have been? Would we have had anything to bring to that arrangement? (laughs) Really. Joseph needed Jesus to save him, to provide for him, to care for him. So much more than anything that Joseph could do. And yet God allowed him to be a part. Joseph was instructed to name the child, which in that culture establishes legal headship. I can think of no reason that he would do that in that culture, knowing the child is not literally his, physically his, unless he believed that the boy really was the Savior of the world. Only God could write this kind of story. 
Only God could write a story where he comes to earth in the form of a helpless baby and is entrusted to somebody who is both a poor, quiet laborer and the rightful heir to the throne of Israel. Only God can write that. And yet Joseph's part was small. The question for us this morning is, what will it be? Will it be our own made-up story that we live? Or will it be the story that He's writing for us that is actually the real story? You see, all of us, we want to buy the lie of Satan. The lie that we were meant for greater things. You know, that's what God had in the right? God gave them a story. He gave them a purpose. He said, go do this and rejoice. And the enemy came and said, you know what? You can actually be greater than that. Your story can be better. And they believed it. They believed that God was holding out on them. And if you're honest about your own life, don't you often feel like God is holding out on you? Don't you feel like He's just... He could do more, but He's not. He could write a better story for you. We want God's role in the story. But He will not give His glory to another. And so my question for all of us, including myself, will we receive Jesus and name Him Savior? Will we name Him Jesus? Will you take a walk-on part in the story that He is writing? Will you be content of a life of quiet submission to the Father and then enjoy eternal life with His friends? Or will you keep trying to make your own story work out and receive a lead role in the cage? Lord Jesus, as we wrestle this morning with um, hopefully conviction, hopefully the Spirit is speaking to us and helping us to see that our own story that we would write is not all that it's cracked up to be. But Lord, I pray that in the midst of that conviction, we would be just enthralled by the beauty and the majesty of the story that you're writing, that we are invited to be a part of. And whatever it would be, that it would be enough, that we would rejoice in it, that we would be glad just to have a background role, if that's all it ends up being. But that we will join in everlasting course. Thank you praises to the God who is worthy. In your name we pray. Amen.